Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash HMJ. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Takeda Development Center Americas, Incorporated. Welcome to this Peer Voice activity on fluid management. This activity comprises a series of six streaming episodes with Drs. Manu Malbrain and Prashant Nasa. Hello, uh, ladies and gentlemen. This is Manu Malbrain. I'm Professor of Critical Care Research from the First Department of Anesthesiology Intensive Therapy at the Medical University of Lublin in Poland. I'm also the President of the International Fluid Academy. So welcome to this activity on pros and cons of colloid treatment and cases in the critically ill. In this first episode, entitled Financing Fluid Therapy in the Critically Ill, not a one-size-fits-all solution, we will review key points on the physiology, fluid and electrolyte balance. We will review fluid management strategies, describing what factors to take into account when administering colloids and other fluid replacement therapies. So we know that sepsis kills. And if we put this in perspective, sepsis even kills more than prostate cancer, breast cancer, and other cancers combined. The sepsis 3.0 definitions define sepsis as infection plus organ failure or dysfunction. In fact, it's a dysregulated host response. So what is the solution if uh, one size does not fit all? I would like to share you points that we need to address. The four Ds on drug dose duration de-escalation. The four Ds resuscitation, maintenance, replacement, nutrition. It's important to bear in mind that whenever a fluid is being infused, there will be a volume expansion effect, regardless whether the fluid is a crystalloid or a colloid. We also know that distribution and excretion of IV fluids is very slow and low during shock states, during anesthesia and surgery, then compared to a healthy, conscious volunteer. The four indications. Recent data show that only 6% of fluids is for resuscitation, 25% for maintenance, 33% for nutrition, and another 33 is fluid creep. It's fluids that seep into the patient while we are administering antibiotics and other drugs. Above all, we must treat every patient individual and we must personalize our treatment. And if we look at all the different guidelines from the Surviving Sepsis Campaign and Gifta Soup and the NICE guidelines, in addition to some recent publications of the Fluid Academy, I would like to give some guidance um, to everyone who is listening. When it comes to fluids in sepsis, and I think also in COVID, first assessment is important. History must be obtained, clinical assessment, and we need to calculate the daily fluid balance, daily body weight, and calculate the cumulative fluid balance. We need to assess fluid and electrolyte requirement regularly and combine with clinical judgment, vital signs and chart data. We need recent lab results like urea and electrolytes and obtain them once every 24 hours. We should use cardiac output monitors to assess fluid responsiveness and combine with ultrasound 
and bioimpedance monitoring. When it comes to resuscitating patients, we need to use balanced or maybe better buffered crystallite solutions as they form a good first choice. We should not use starch solutions nor gelatins. I don't think there is a place for hypertonic albumin 4%. And the patients that are in need of fluid resuscitation, we need to identify the cause of the fluid deficit, assess for the presence of shock or hypoperfusion, assess fluid responsiveness, and start with a bolus or better, a mini fluid challenge at 1 ml per kilo over five minutes. We need to assess the fluid responsiveness before, but also after administering fluids. And this can be done with functional hemodynamics or the passive leg raise test. Till blood pressure and cardiac output should be monitored continuously. And we should think of early initiation of vasopressors, noradrenaline at a low dose. If the patient is in need for higher doses, we think of the addition of vasopressin or agipressin. We need to assess for the presence of fluid overload or better fluid accumulation syndrome, which is a 10% increase in body weight uh, of volume excess from baseline. We need to start de-escalation and in some patients de-resuscitation whenever possible. And this could be done with a frusomide stress test. And we need to replace the albumin levels with hypertonic albumin in case there is fluid overload and end organ failure or dysfunction. While de-resuscitating, we can use a combination therapy of diuretics and in some patients we may even need to consider hemofiltration. We should not administer maintenance fluids in patients who are eating and drinking spontaneously. If we need to give them, we should use hypotonic maintenance solutions, as I showed you that isotonic solutions will lead to a positive fluid and sodium balance. And we need to cover the daily needs of water, potassium, sodium, chloride and glucose to limit starvation ketosis. So in summary, a tailored approach in choosing fluid types is extremely important to avoid detrimental effects of fluid overload, better accumulation. One size does not fit all, and a buffered crystalloid offers a good first choice. Patient factors need to be considered when selecting an IV fluid type, including the volume status of the patient, presence of capillary leak, fluid responsiveness, patient's electrolyte and acid-base status, and ongoing disease processes and comorbidities like congestive heart failure, AKI or chronic kidney disease. Fluid factors needs to be taken into consideration like the dose, the amount of fluids, the type, tonicity, buffered or not, the timing, the speed of administration, electrolyte and organic anion concentration, and compatibility with drugs and other fluids that will be co-administered. I thank you for your kind attention. Hello ladies and gentlemen, in this episode we will discuss management of patients in septic shock that require fluid resuscitation. So I would like to present you a patient case scenario of a man of 54 years old who had acute leukemia. He was in complete remission after chemotherapy and was found underward, agitated, he had uh, tachycardia, low blood pressure, the CVP was up to his ears, he was in respiratory distress, already received some uh, oxygen, and we noticed that the abdomen was distended and painful, and there was no peristalsis. 
But what else do you need in a patient with shock and a distended painful abdomen? The answer is intra-abdominal pressure, which can be obtained via a bladder catheter. And that pressure was 20 millimeters of mercury. The patient also had oliguria. His peripheries were not well perfused with an increased capillary refill time. There was some hypoxia on blood gas analysis and lactate was increased. So this patient is in shock. If we look at the chest X-ray, we can see that because of the increased intra-abdominal pressure, the diaphragm is pushed upwards. And this results in what we refer to as baby lungs. Because of the respiratory distress and the shock state, the patient was intubated and mechanically ventilated after sedation. We performed transthoracic cardiac ultrasound and injection fraction was low at 30%. So now, do we have sufficient information uh, to provide the best treatment of our patient? Do we get fluids, presses, inotropes? Well, frankly, we didn't know either. So the patient was given some norepinephrine, which was swiftly increased to 0.4 gamma. There was some dobutamine given at 3 gamma, and FI2 was increased to 100%. And while we were doing a recruitment maneuver, the patient almost crashed and went for cardiac arrest with a drop in systolic blood pressure. Some fluids were given, but we were afraid with the high filling pressures on tissue Doppler. So we gave some buffered uh, crystalloids. But if we look better at inferior vena cava collapsibility, we saw that this uh, index was increased over 50%. So this triggered us to give consciously some more fluids. And we gave a combination of some hypertonic fluids and some buffered crystalloids. So the fluid status matters and we need the right parameters in order to guide our treatment. So it's always the question between the benefits of fluid administration and the risk of fluid administration. So going back to the case, the patient went for CT and you can see that the abdomen is distended with an increase in sagittal and transversal diameter and at the level of the cecum there was some free air in the bowel wall, column bowl wall was thickened uh, up to uh, four to six centimeters um, and there were some free fluids. So the diagnosis at this stage confirms a primary acute abdominal compartment syndrome. We have high abdominal pressures and we have end organ failure and dysfunction. The surgeons opened the abdomen, found the impending necrosis at the level of the cecum, Cultures became positive for phancoresistant enterococci and candida and they decided to leave the abdomen open with a temporary abdominal closure. But the patient was still in septic shock and overnight received over 6 liters of fluid. The abdomen got distended, abdominal pressure increased again and a Bogota bag was placed in the ICU. Same question, what do we do with our patient already received a lot of fluids? Do we give more presses, inotropes, fluids or remove fluids? And this is uh, the point where we need more advanced hemodynamic monitoring with calibrated pulse contour analysis, which can be done with, for instance, the PICO technology. Filling 
of buffered crystalloids, the volumetric preload indicators increased, but because of all the fluids, because of the septic state and the capillary leak, we saw that over the next days the lungs got flooded and extravascular lung water increased up to 20 milliliters per predicted body weight. On CT we can identify ventilated recruitable areas, so this is the hallmark of a secondary ARDS. At this stage, with increased volumetric preload, increased lung water and a low pulse pressure variation, we made the decision to de-resuscitate. In a combination of lung recruitment with high PEEP, substituting the albumin to levels of 30 gram per liter, followed by furosemide. Over the next week, we were able to get rid of the excess fluids and extubate the patient. So in summary, a combination of balanced, better buffered crystalloids and hypertonic albumin at later stage can be used in patients with septic shock. Hello friends, I'm Dr. Prashant Nasa, working as head of the department in uh, critical care medicine at NMC Specialty Hospital, Dubai. I will be talking today about pros and cons of colloid in management of critical ill patients. Thank you for joining in. We will be talking in the next few slides, a patient of pediatric sepsis and requiring to resuscitation. A four-year-old child with a history of vomiting and a fever of 40 degrees Celsius presented to the emergency department with prostration, restlessness. He was drowsy, apathetic, and looks anorexic. On clinical examination, the child appears unwell. Vital signs include a heart rate of 160 per minute, respiratory rate of 35 per minute, blood pressure of 100 by 60 millimeter of mercury, a capillary refill time of three seconds, which was increased, a base deficit of 20 millimeter of liter, showing a severe metabolic acidosis and a hemoglobin of 84 gram per liter. So signs of dehydration was there in this case. Uh, we know the signs of fluid loss in a pediatric patient are a delayed capillary refill time of more than two seconds. Uh, abnormal skin targetity, abnormal respiratory pattern. Pediatric patients are difficult to treat because they have a higher metabolic requirement. There's a larger body surface area, which all leads to higher amount of fluid losses. And also, as compared to an adult, a pediatric patient is unlikely to ask for a glass of water. With fluid administration, the issue is either a crystalloid or a colloid. There is no evidence which support the use of colloid in patients with a pediatric age group. Hypertonic fluid definitely should be avoided in these patients. That is because of cellular overhydration that may lead to increased morbidity and mortality. In patients of pediatric age group, the issue is either to give larger fluid boluses or a smaller fluid boluses. Previously, most of the recommendations were giving a larger fluid boluses, but since FEAST trial, which came in 2011, especially in patients with malaria, the issue started to restrict the fluid because there was a definitely a higher mortality in patients who received the fluid boluses followed by a randomized control trial uh, from UK, a FISH trial on an Indian trial, again, supporting the same higher fluid boluses and especially uh, in a shorter period of time can lead to a problem in these patients. In patients with malaria, especially where uh, you know uh, malaria is an endemic, this particular paper from 2005 showed that patients who were given albumin definitely had a better outcome as compared to the patients who received 0.9% sodium chloride. While the further going about the management, you know, the patient we had was having a severe metabolic acidosis and all signs of uh, sepsis and septic shock were present in that patient. So we'll start with a uh, resuscitation using a 10 to 20 ml of kg 
and either of a uh, crystalloid or a colloid, a zero, which could be a 4.5% albumin in these uh, age group. We need to restore a circulation to restore the tissue perfusion and finally to restore the oxygen delivery to the tissues. How to time the administration? A single bolus to be given on a longer duration and additional policies has to be done only after reassessment. After each fluid bolus, we should reassess whether another fluid bolus is required or not. If larger fluids are required, we should consider an ongoing loss like an hemorrhage where a blood will be much more an appropriate fluid and uh, ongoing resuscitation should be done with a reassessment using a capillary refill time or other signs of clinical assessment. Potential complication which can happen in pediatric age group is obviously a fluid overload and which can be detected by looking at the peripheral edema or hepatomegaly, a sodium disturbance in forms of hyperhypernatremia, and obviously a hypoglycemia. Thank you for listening. I hope I convinced you how to manage a patient with pediatric sepsis who requires fluid and various aspects of fluid management in this age group. Hello, everyone. We will be starting with a uh, case of acute respiratory distress syndrome, a patient with sepsis and ARDS. Uh, starting with a case, a 68-year-old female with history of hypertension, type 2 diabetes mellitus, cerebrovascular accident. She was presented to the ER with two days of fever, shortness of breath. She denied any chest pain, palpitations, or other GI symptoms, or any systemic symptoms other than fever, cough, and shortness of breath. Her saturation was on room air at 81% and she was immediately started on a 15 liter oxygen through a non-rebreathing mask and with that her oxygen improved to 91 percent initial chest x-ray showed a diffuse bilateral patchy opacities consisting with the ards or uh, possibly because of a viral pneumonia due to impending respiratory failure patient was immediately intubated and transferred to the intensive care unit for the further management during the ICU course, her blood pressure fell down to now 90 by 56 millimeter of mercury or a mean arterial pressure of 56 pulse rate of 118 per minute. Her uh, blood gases showed uh, uh, acidosis of PA 7.28, PaO2 of uh, 45, PaCO2 of 48, and saturation of 88 with FiO2 of 1, uh, PF ratio of 45, uh, severe ARDS, uh, initiated on lung protective mechanical ventilation strategy. So besides the initial ventilation strategy, definitely she qualifies for a definition of ARDS and this Berlin definition in 2012 showed an acute presentation within one week, showing a bilateral opacities on, on an initial radiological examination. Respiratory failure should not be explained by cardiac failure or a fluid overload. And we can assess ARDS into mild, moderate, or CR depending upon the PF ratio. And while talking about the fluid management and ARDS, a patient who is already gone from uh, sepsis into a multi-system organ involvement into ARDS, and there is an increased alveolar capillary leak which happens in the patient with ARDS and the type of fluid is very much important. When we talk about fluid administration, it can be a crystalloid or a colloid as an option. There is an evidence in terms of favoring a balanced solution probably because of all these uh, favorable effects which are seen with balanced solution or replacing a bicarbonate or uh, you know, maintaining a more of a physiological pH. But definitely there is a caution which needs to be considered while dealing with any crystalloid, whether a balanced or an unbalanced solution issues about a fluid overload talking about a non-balanced a 0.9 sodium chloride definitely it has a half-life of a more than as compared to balanced solution so it stays in the circulation a little longer but at the same time we need to consider a higher chloride concentration in these iv fluids that may lead to reduction of the renal blood flow and increase the risk of acute kidney injury 
also there is a very high risk of hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis in these patients while talking about colloids as we have seen that starches are definitely to be avoided in patients with sepsis so the only option we are left with is albumin uh, in terms of either a 4.5 or 5% albumin or a hyperoncotic albumin which is a 20 to 25% why albumin they are known to cause improvement in physiological parameters after administration with or without uh, diuretic in a patient with ARDS it can also affect the microvasculature and attenuate a vascular permeability by reducing capillary leak and also can one can consider during de resuscitation the meta analysis of 14 studies found that albumin administration was actually have been outcome benefit in terms of reduction in mortality and that actually led to change of recommendation in surviving sepsis cap means after a large volume resuscitation with pristeroid one can consider using albumin as the second choice of fluid uh, as a, uh, in a especially in a patient who are requiring large fluid. Why this is important? Because as we have seen in these uh, papers of intensive care medicine, the higher the fluid uh, cumulative balance on day three, there is a risk of 90 day mortality, which is higher in these patients. They should, as, uh, there is a requirement of a conservative fluid strategy provided you are maintaining organ perfusion. And this recent paper in talk about a possibility of using de-resuscitation either with a diuretic or a combination of albumin plus diuretic. In a small study of 180 patients, where 30 patients were for ARDS, there was no benefit in terms of mortality or other clinical outcomes. But definitely this paper showed there is a possibility we can do a de-resuscitation in these patients. And maybe a larger trial can show an outcome difference. Thank you for joining us. Please stay tuned for the next episode. Hello ladies and gentlemen, in this episode we will discuss management of patients with burn injuries that require fluid resuscitation. I would like to present to you a case of a 19-year-old uh, woman who got a flame burn and got burned 31% uh, of the body surface area. Because it was in the face, she was electively intubated after sedation and mechanically ventilated and came to the burn unit with an radial arterial line and two peripheral lines. There is a big risk for fluid creep in patients with severe burn injuries, especially if total burn surface area goes beyond 25 and even more percent. There is a risk for secondary intra-abdominal hypertension and ARDS. So we need to start with basic monitoring, always invasive blood pressure and post-pressure variation, and we need to assess fluid responsiveness with the passive leg raising test and perform point-of-care ultrasound. We must escalate our monitoring tools and go to calibrated cardiac output with volumetric monitoring in unstable patients. We start with baseline buffered hypotonic maintenance solutions to cover the daily needs and to avoid starvation ketosis, but stop these solutions as soon as possible. We propose a modified Parkland formula at only 2 ml per kilo per percent of total burn surface area, with half of it given over the first eight hours, and only give extra fluids when the patient needs them. As soon as possible, start to de-escalate with a combination of hypertonic albumin and buffered crystalloids. We continue our monitoring to observe the impact of fluid accumulation on endorgan function and think about abdominal pressure, lung water, pulmonary vascular permeability index and oxygenation. Volumetric preload indicators are better than barometric ones. 
But if the pressures are low, they are truly low and indicative of hypovolemia. We must address nutritional needs after day two, stop the maintenance. Next, secondary abdominal hypertension needs to be addressed and there is a medical management algorithm for this, not going into detail. Next, secondary ARDS needs to be addressed. And once the capillary leak resolves, from day two onwards, the resuscitation can be started in case of the impact of fluid creep on organ function. Otherwise, watchful waiting. Thank you. So we are going to see another case of patient with major elective surgery that requires fluid resuscitation. A 67-year-old female, she was admitted uh, into emergency department for uh, carcinoma rectum, a surgery which has to be performed on her uh, abdominal perineal resection. She had uh, several days of abdominal pain and diarrhea. She was afibrile, pulse rate of 110 per minute, blood pressure of 100 by 40 millimeter of mercury with a mean arterial pressure of 67 millimeter of mercury. Uh, on ex abdominal examination, there was mild tenderness and a palpable fullness on the left lower quadrant. On per rectal examination, there was a friable growth, which was bleeding. White cell count showed a uh, 13,000 of with 56% neutrophils, a hematocrit of 30%, serum creatinine of 1.5 milligram per deciliter, lactate of 2.6, hypokalemia with a potassium of 2.8, hyperphosphatemia with phosphate of 1.1. Management of this patient consider uh, fluid uh, requirement because this patient has been uh, having a fluid deficit in terms of continuous diarrhea and decreased oral intake in last few days. A crystalloid will be a very important aspect fluid administration which will cover the initial deficit also and will try to correct the def uh, electrolyte deficit. So there is no need of uh, resuscitation but at the same time we need to cover up for the deficit which has been accumulated over a period of time. Uh, while considering options between crystalloid and colloid, uh, there is Evidence which favors crystalloid because of fatality benefit, but it is inconsistent in many of the studies. While with the colloids, there are higher risk of uh, post-op nausea vomiting as compared to with crystalloid. And this particular paper, which was published in 2021 in Critical Care, a goal-directed therapy, they found in 21 randomized control trials of more than 2,700 patients. The post-operative complications were definitely low and the mortality was no different between the two groups. There was no difference in the terms of outcome in the surgical patients. There were no major trials which have found whether a crystalloid is better or a colloid is better. In a subgroup of population of surgical patients in a large randomized controlled trial, which was published in JAMA in 2013 and in anesthesiology in 2018, again, there was no mortality difference. Uh, Cochrane meta-analysis found, again, no risk of no mortality uh, difference in terms of crystalloid or colloid in more than 30,000 patients who were uh, requiring surgery or a post-operative patients. Most of the global uh, goal-directed therapy studies have actually used colloid boluses for volume resuscitation. There are no such studies which have compared crystalloid versus colloid, but recently a randomized controlled trial actually used colloid for resuscitation, especially in a closed loop system, and they found a lower rate of uh, post-operative complications. So there is small evidence to support colloid, especially when you are requiring a large amount of fluid replacement, especially in a patient like you know, gastrointestinal surgery where there are pre-operative deficits and an ongoing deficit. So which colloid, a gelatin, starches, or an albumin? We know with the gelatin, there is an increased risk of coagulopathy, especially because of impairment of a clot formation. And obviously there is a risk of uh, anaphylaxis. We know about starches, there is a definitely increased risk of acute kidney injury and mortality in ICU. And that's why they have uh, become an obsolete in critically ill patient, especially in the intensive care unit setting. So we are left with an albumin. 
albumin induces less bleeding as compared to uh, at the starches in a one study of cardiopulmonary bypass patients in postoperative cardiac surgery patients. Again, in another retrospective an analysis of uh, 20,000 patients with uh, cardiopulmonary bypass, there was lower mortality rate in patients who were given albumin as compared to the crystalloids. And a non-cardiac surgery patients, albumin versus normalcinine or a 0.9% sodium chloride, there was no difference in the mortality or an acute kidney injury. So that favors uh, albumin in these patients. Thank you for joining us today. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.